Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Welcome to Recode Media with Peter Kafka. That is me sweating in Brooklyn, which is where I'm taping this episode. I um, want to welcome back to the show Chris Best. He is the CEO of Substack which is a company I think many people who listen to this show have heard about. It allows you to become your own one-person media company via newsletters. Welcome, Chris. Thanks for having me. You've been on the show before. I haven't spoken to you before. Casey Newton from The Verge stepped in and did a guest host uh, job and really should have kept that job. He does a better job than me. But that's a very good conversation. (laughs) If you're interested in learning more about Substack after this conversation, go up and find the one we did. Uh, I think it is fall, early fall of 2018. You can dig that one up. Um, so long ago now. It's so long ago. And I first wrote about you guys in 2017 when you were launching. And I thought, this is an interesting little business. It allows people who want to be a Ben Thompson, who writes the strategy newsletter, to sort of try it themselves. You guys do all the back-end work for them and allow them to sort of write the newsletter. And you guys handle monetization and publishing and all of that. Uh, and that sounded good. And my main thought was, there aren't a lot of people who can use this service. There's a lot of people who might think they want to be the next Ben Thompson, uh, but there aren't many Ben Thompsons out there. And I thought this this will probably be uh, what venture capitalists politely call a, or derogatorily call a, a lifestyle <laughs> business. Seems like I was wrong. It seems like yeah. you guys uh, have found a lot of folks who both want to make newsletters and, and an audience for them. Can you just get us up to date on sort of how big the business is right now? Yeah, um, I'm glad we've avoided the horrible fate of having a good lifestyle. That would have been uh, that would have yeah, been yeah. Now you're taking actual venture capital money, which <laughs> we can talk about that too. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, the scale right now is there's kind of you know many thousands of writers, millions of readers, and I think the last number we made public was that there's well over a hundred thousand paying subscribers on Substack. And can we divide up the thousands of writers into people who are doing it full-time and making a full-time living doing it versus people who are sort of noodling around? We can. I don't, I'm not going to tell you all the numbers, but uh, I mean, there's, there's, a, there's now enough people that are making a full-time living on it and beyond that you can't chalk it up to coincidence. Let's put it that way. So you've proven out the thesis, as they say, and you have traction, as they say. Yeah, if you if you insist on using all of the the words. Well, listen, if you're gonna if you're gonna take venture capital money, I think you have to use all those words. You got a lot of money from Andreessen Horowitz, I think uh, last year, some other funders. Um, so they like what they saw, and and the reason you popped up on my radar again uh, recently. I think Ben Smith wrote about you for a piece in the Times. Uh, and then news in our universe last week was that Andrew Sullivan, who up until last week 
was working at New York Magazine, which is owned by Vox Media, so he was technically my coworker, even though I've never met him, uh, announced that he was leaving, and he's got a long essay about why he's leaving, and he went to Substack, and the two things that were interesting to me about that was, one, that he went to Substack, and two, that everyone, everyone said, oh, of course he's going to Substack. That's exactly <laughs> what, a re- what someone like Andrew Sullivan, who is a known writer, has a following, and had doesn't or can't work at the place he's working at for whatever reason, of course he will go create a Substack uh, newsletter, which I guess is kind of the best endorsement you guys could get, right? Not not that he's doing it, but that it's, it's such an obvious thing for someone like him to do. It's kind of un- funny and uncanny to me that that's the case, because it hasn't, it really, the, the, the sort of feeling that you described at the start of being like, oh, that sounds like a fun toy business is kind of the reaction that we've always got from people. Mm-hmm. And it's really only in the past couple of months that it feels like something has flipped and people start podcasts with me now being like, so Substack is a big deal. I'm like, oh, that's that's a new and exciting framing. Good for you. I guess bad <laughs> for me that I'm so late to the game. Do you think something changed or is this just a, it's popped up on enough podcasters' radars that, that, that they feel that way? I think the big part of it is that we've, been steadily growing. And you if you have steady growth over a long period of time, it starts at some point to get to a place where it's it's noticeable to people. Um, I do think that you know the a lot of the bad things that are going on in the world and and just COVID being a, a terrible thing has been a bit of a tailwind for our growth. You know, we're in a fortunate position where unlike many businesses that are suffering from it, it's it's accelerating the trends that make Substack important. Um, and so that's we've had like very strong sort of adoption in the past few months. So one version of that is bad time for the media business, maybe a good time for you guys, because there's a lot of folks uh, who might have, who are either newly uh, unemployed or maybe considering leaving a shaky situation and, and, and you offer a potential sort of lifeboat. Yeah, and this is, you know, when we started the company, we kind of started it with a thesis that, hey, there are a bunch of ways in which the business model for the legacy media is broken. And, you know, even in 2017 saying like, hey, like all the newspapers are kind of in trouble was not like a, a, a galaxy brain take. <laughs> and mm-hmm. it's just, you know, that that trend is proving out and, and unfortunately uh, accelerating. And then is it just my imagination or is the idea that I, this is this is a little bit of sort of the Silicon Valley versus the East Coast? Um, I will see certain Silicon Valley Twitter types saying Screw East Coast media. Screw big media. We can all become Substack writers now. And it seems like something has caught their attention in the Valley as well. And some of it is maybe politically charged. I think another reason people thought, oh, it makes sense that Andrew Sullivan is going to Substack is that Andrew is on the right side of the spectrum, though he says he's liberal in some ways. And some notion that people who have been canceled or or restrained in some way can find freedom to publish on Substack. Is that something you guys have tried to cultivate? To me, this fits into the other part of the our thesis, um, which is, I think, essentially that social media is breaking our brains a little bit. Um, and so, you know, the sort of twin, twin reasons we started Substack were, you know, one, hey, the business models for written culture are failing writers. As a writer, there's certain types of work that would be valuable for you to do and that people want, and that there just isn't a good model to like connect that and make that happen and let writers and creators capture a bunch of the value. And then the other side of the equation to me is because of the lack of business model for large swaths of content, what ends up happening is people are giving all of their attention to their 
social media feeds that are sort of like ad supported and which therefore are optimized for engagement. And so, you know, if you're uh, somebody that runs a social media feed, you're just, you're trying to sell as many ads as possible. You want people coming back kind of like addictively. And so you just, you tweak the algorithm to show whatever's most engaging and not by malice, but because human beings are human beings, a lot of the things that succeed in that kind of mimetic environment are things that make us angry or afraid or hate each other. And I see the this what I think of as kind of like silly tech versus journalism Twitter drama, not as like an interesting fundamental shift. I see that as like a symptom of a bad sort of media landscape where we're having the dumbest possible version of every important argument we could be we could be having. I want to talk about engagement and clickbait in a second, but I do, I do want to ask, have you gone out and sort of presented yourself to the Andrew Sullivans of the world and said, hey, guys, uh, generally guys, uh, and Barry Weiss, uh, if you're being canceled by the man, uh, you can come to us, we're a safe space, uh, or are they finding it on their own? Do you have to do outreach to this for this? We, I mean, we go to lots of writers and the pitch is like, hey, you should go independent. You should connect directly with your own audience right? You should own the relationship that you have with your audience. You should own all of your own content. You should get to make your own editorial decisions and you should be able to uh, sort of charge subscriptions and have people support you directly. A, because you're going to make more money that way and it's going to be nice and great. And B, because that buys your independence. That gives you a place where the, you know, the, the, the job that you have to do is give value to your readers and they're the ones that decide that, that hire and fire you essentially. Did you guys and go think, to, did you guys go to Andrew Sullivan? Um, you know, I'm not, I don't exactly remember what happened there. I do know that when we first started the company in 2017, we actually started by writing a manifesto because we're huge nerds. And in that document, we kind of cited in this sort of crazy idea. This is before we even, before you wrote that article, before we had Bill Bishop, we sort of laid out this plan of like, hey, people can go independent on the internet as writers and people will pay for it. And we had two sort of proof points that made, gave us the confidence to believe that that could be true. One of whom was Ben Thompson and the other of whom was Andrew Sullivan uh, with The Dish, because of course he ran The Dish for years and, and sort of proved this model of independent journalism before Substack ever existed. And so quite early on, we were, I think we were trying to like vaguely, you know, talk to him just because mm-hmm. in the same way that we, you know, sort of uh, talked to Ben Thompson early on because it was a model for what we were doing. He's a spiritual co-founder. I, something like that. I'll give you, I, I, I want to talk more about how it's, how all that's going to work. I did, I did want to go back to this idea you brought about, about engagement, because you hear this a lot from people who preach um, the merits of paying for, for content, which I'm all for. Um, even on this free podcast, I'm all for it. Um, but this idea, and again, I've seen it in some of the Silicon Valley discussions, like, oh, it's clickbait. You're trying to get someone to click on this. Clickbait, right, is, is you, you advertise something you don't deliver. Mm-hmm. Say, I'm going to show you this salacious thing, and then you click on it, and you don't get it. That's clickbait. Telling someone, I've got something salacious, and they click on it, and they get to see it, that's just a happy customer, right? And if you're but in that's the... Just that's if you're in, but if you're in the newsletter business, you have to engage your customer. You have to keep them sure. coming back. You can't bore them to death. Netflix has a giant subscription business with 200 million mm-hmm. people, and they go out of their way to find the entertaining content that will keep people happy. I'm wondering if, as you're working with these writers, if there's, if you sort of have to go, look, 
we know we told you you could write whatever you want and, and be free of the man, and the, um, but you still eventually have to figure out how to get people to engage with the stuff you're making. And if it's too dry, you've got to find a way to liven it up. Or if no one's responding to topic X, Y, and Z, you got to consider something else. How much sort of training do you have to offer uh, or, or, or coaching or I guess what we used to call editing uh, do you offer um, your writers? We definitely don't do any editing. The best way that we've found this stuff is by finding the people who are doing this stuff on the platform and and letting their lessons kind of percolate. So we, for example, we have a little we have a, a podcast where we interview uh, writers who have succeeded on Substack, and they can kind of like tell the story of what they did and and mm-hmm. how they think about it and what matters. And the real difference, and this is true of podcasting as well, the real difference is not uh, you know are people choosing to engage with this thing or not. Um, you know, are, are you are you deceiving people into clicking things? I think the relevant thing is like, how are people making the decision of what they're putting into their head? And with something like a podcast or like a newsletter, you kind of take a step back and you decide as your best self, like, hey, what do I want to be in my media diet, and what am I what am I optimizing for, and what what's going to make my life better by subscribing to? And when you make that decision, you're not think, you're not like, you know. Our job is not to like make you eat your vegetables. We're not here being like only read dry, informative, you know, pure mm-hmm. journalistic content. We're kind of like, look, whatever you whatever you think is going to make your life better by your own lights, like like I'm kind of here for that. The trick is like, how do you make that decision? And increasingly, the way that people make that decision is they kind of delegate it to these really addictive modes of interaction where, you know, you, you sort of like fall into a Twitter hole and you're sitting there kind of like one more scroll, one more scroll. What am I going to click on? What am I going to engage with? And to the extent that people want to do that, like, it's great. I, I you know, I'm, I, yep. I think that's totally fine. But I think what's happening is that people are starting to have this sense of like, hey, I am delegating a lot of the way I spend my attention to these various feeds and I'm actually not happy about it. It's actually not the way that I want to spend my life or my attention. And I want to have some other way where I'm still deciding and I'm still, you know, figuring out what I want my media diet to be. But I want to make it on the level of, hey, I really trust this podcaster and I think they have an interesting perspective. And so I'm going to put them in my podcast app and that's how I'm going to decide. I really trust this newsletter writer. So I'm going to subscribe. Maybe I'm going to pay for them. And how do you think that the the Substack newsletter writer fits into the media diet, right? Do you imagine that one day I get all my information from 10 different newsletter writers and that's and then maybe I pay an 11th one to summarize it for me or that I have news publication X, Y, and Z and then two other newsletter people because they either have specific uh, expertise that I can't get somewhere else or maybe I like that maybe they're funny, maybe they, I like the way they summarize the news. Um, right now, my sense of... of successful newsletters are a mix of analysis and aggregation slash curation. You don't have time to read everything. I did. Here's five good articles and and four paragraphs of a really good idea. Uh, ben Thompson writes three really deep essays a week. They're not pegged to the news. Um, but they're all sort of, they, they all assume that you are consuming news other places as well. Yeah. I mean, I, I think there's, I think there's a big world and <laughs> I think there's, the, the appetite for things like what you get on Substack is fairly high. And the, the key sort of ingredient there is like the trusted voice and the trusted perspective. I think curation is really valuable there. Opinion is valuable there. We do see some like reporting and sort of journalism. If I'm, you know, I really care about thing X and I can't find good stuff about it. And there's somebody that's covering it, like I'll, I'll pay for that. Um, and even like 
comedy, fiction, uh, you know, culture, entertainment. Um, it's a model that works for a lot of a lot of things. What do you imagine? Sort of, what's your roadmap? Do you imagine? I saw that you guys have, have added a feature where multiple writers can sort of join together mm-hmm. in a Substack. I think in the old days we would call that a magazine or maybe even a newspaper. Do you see yourself sort of moving towards that model where you sort of actually allow people to put together a, an actual publication with with multiple voices? And do you think this is something that you eventually want to bundle? different writers together on your own and there's sort of a Substack assembled magazine or is the idea that the appeal of Substack is there's a very specific writer, there's a very specific voice and you only want that, you don't want the other nine? I think one of our core principles is independence. As a writer, you're, the thing that Substack is, is enabling for you is independence. I get to go independent, I get to connect with my audience. To me, the logic for uh, you know, having letting multiple people work on a, a publication together is just we had lots of writers that that wanted that, and they they were saying it would help them go independent if they could do it with friends. And by the way, you know, as somebody that started a company, like I wanted to have co-founders. It's like a, it's that's a natural sort of mm-hmm. like sensible thing to want. And so I think it is valuable. I think people still can you know subscribe to a newsletter that's written by two people that they trust and that work together in some interesting way. The bundling stuff is really interesting because bundle economics do exist and there is like a, you know, a case where, hey, there's a way that the reader and the writers can both benefit from a bundle existing. I think the thing that really matters to us is that to the extent that we enable bundling on the platform, it will be bottom up and driven by the writers and not top down. So the thing that we will never do is come in and say, okay, writers, like you have your audience, but we're imposing some top-down bundle on you because we think that would be good because in doing so we would destroy the very thing that makes the whole the whole proposition valuable and so the thing that i'm excited to see is writers that are kind of like self-federating that are like hey i write about x you write about y both of these are really interesting they're not overlapping too much there'd be some people that would like one or the other like we should get together and cut some deal i'm really excited about that and it's an interesting space and we're exploring it and there's not we don't have too much. We're not too far down that path yet. Okay, so that's a thing that could happen. It doesn't happen. It doesn't exist really right now. Yeah, there's some experiments running. So there's people that are running multiple publications. Um, Nate Bichez and Dan Schiffer are doing an everything bundle where they've kind of like convinced a couple of independent writers to like sort of federate with them. And that's going mm-hmm. fairly well. They're just sort of like running essentially a, a, an early test of that. But yeah, we're not we're not deep down that path. And then, at all. what about other medium? I mean, if this was a few years ago, I'd say video. We'll, we'll give video a pass. I mean, is it something where you can imagine adding podcasts, uh, imagining other kinds of writing um, into this package? Yeah. So we actually uh, we have podcast support right now. Uh, kind of hidden in the product, <laughs> it's sort of under a little beta tick box. Okay, I don't feel bad for um, not seeing it then. No, it's we we're, we do a terrible job of popularizing this, and I, I do think we'll be adding other media types. And the the biggest reason is just like we are trying to serve writers and to create these like you know individual media empires, like you were you were saying. And it turns out that a lot of writers want to do podcasts and want to make videos, and so we're it's, we're just going to get we're, we're going to get pulled down that path. We like talking. We like hearing ourselves talk. Occasionally, like hearing what other people have to say. Um, It's an interview show where I talk over you all the time. Sorry about that. Um, And I'm sure everyone has talked to you about this, but this cycle that uh, Andrew Sullivan's a great example, right? So he was running the New Republic, gains notoriety there, 
does the daily dish, eventually makes that the subscription business. That seems to work. He then burns himself out and he ends up at a bigger national publication um, for the reasons that lots of people want to go to big publications and media organizations is they can pay well and also they give you support and you don't have to worry about making this week's uh, uh, numbers. I'm wondering how you sort of think that will play out for this newest cohort of people you're bringing on. Um, right now, everyone's on the up. It seems to be going well. Eventually, they're going to, eventually, everyone will have a Substack, right? Like everyone's got a podcast, everyone had a blog post. Um, and eventually, the market will sort of shake out a little bit. And I imagine you're going to have people saying, I, I thought I could do this, but I've hit a wall. This isn't a lifestyle, actually, or I can only do this part time, or it turns out I do need to go work for the man. And I'm wondering how you're thinking about that. Um, a long winded way of saying, can you provide additional support to make this something that is sustainable? This is something we think about a lot. Some of it is just as basic as having kind of like features and norms on the platform. Like something that we're pushing writers is like, it's okay to take a vacation. Like your readers don't expect you never to take a vacation. That's fine. You can, you can do that. And we have features that you can pause subscriptions if you need to take an extended period, stuff like that. Um, we're also looking at more ways that we can sort of support writers going independent. Um, one thing we announced last week is we've started a program that's like adding some additional like legal help. Something that we found was happening was there would be, uh, you know, I'd be like some independent writer writing about some politician in my town being crooked or whatever. And you get like a, a cease and desist letter from a powerful sounding lawyer that just threatens you with a bunch of stuff, which is completely bogus. But when you're an independent writer and you're faced with this scary legal thing, you're like, what do I do about this? Like, how do I, how do I fight this? Right. I can't even afford to call a lawyer, let alone. I can't even afford to call a lawyer. And like, if I, even if I could, what lawyer would I call? And like, what is this? This is scary. And that's, you know, another benefit that's, that, that you would have if you're in, in a big newsroom. And, and so we've been like helping connect those writers with, good lawyers who can help with that stuff and, and, and connect with them basically on the theory that like, especially for the cases where these threats are totally bogus and it's just an attempt to silence, you know, people doing good journalism, we sort of have a, a selfish platform interest. And also there's like a legitimate public interest in just like vigorously defending the most bogus of those cases. And so we have a program now where we're helping do that. We're going to go and like make it so that if you're just trying to shut up some journalists, like we can, basically come lend a hand and and make it so that that's not a, a free thing to do if you're, you know, subject of critical reporting. Chris, you signed up Andrew Sullivan. Who else is on your, your wish list for the rest of the year? Um, Who are you going actually, after? We sat down and made a, a plan for this. And the thing we actually wrote down was all the writers. Um, so you can, <laughs> you can, you can, so if you're listening to this podcast and you've written something, Substack yeah. wants to talk to you. And you, you, you will give someone a stipend, right, to start out? So here's, here's a few thousand dollars to, to get going? Yeah, we're running a few different programs like that. So definitely get in touch with us. Um, there's a, a fellowship that's running that I think the applications are just closed for, but there'll be a next one and you can follow along there. Uh, we have some other programs that we're sort of incubating. So if you write, you want to go independent, definitely get in touch with us. Also, we're hiring too. Okay, well, I'm happily employed at Vox Media, so I'm <laughs> staying put, but uh, I really admire what you guys are doing. It's okay. yeah, I'm wink, glad wink. it's working Got out. It. You know. Got it. No one can see that. Chris Best, <laughs> thanks for your time. Thank you. Thanks again to Chris for getting on the internet and talking with me. Um, again, like I mentioned, Chris had a longer conversation. Um, I don't want to say it's better, but it's very good uh, with Casey Newton from The Verge. You can hear that uh, if you go back and dig up the archive from September 2018. It's worth your time. It's also free. 
So why wouldn't you go do it? Um, speaking of free, we have more free content coming to you in a minute. We're going to talk with Julia Alexander from The Verge about Peacock, NBC slash Comcast new streaming service. But first, a word from a fine sponsor. Did you know the Capital Ideas podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor. What's a mistake they made that changed their approach? And how do they find their next great idea? Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Vacations can be tricky. You already know how to book flights and hotels. But now the only thing you're missing is, you know, the actual travel experience. Because is it really a vacation if you're just sitting around like you would at home? You need a tool to get the most out of your time away. That's where Viator steps in. You can book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between so you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who already been on the experiences you're considering, so you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected, and 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator delighted to have Julia Alexander, our resident internet and internet video and everything expert uh, who works at The Verge, and she's still hiding out in Canada. Welcome, Julia. Thank you for having me. Um, I'm delighted to have you because when when we have you on the show, it means another new video service has been launched. Last time we brought you on to discuss Quibi, we had you on right after we talked to Jeffrey Katzenberg, and I indelicately asked you if you thought Quibi was going to work, and you said no. And all evidence to date points says that you're right. You got it right. <laughs> Quibi is is not successful. So let's start very big picture. Peacock is the new streaming service from NBC Universal slash Comcast. Is Peacock gonna work, Julia Alexander? In the long run, yes. And in the short run, I also think yes. But I don't think it's gonna scale as fast as we are expecting or anticipating it to. So we'll back up one more step. So that's a that's not even a qualified yes. That's a yes. You think it's going to work? I agree. By the way, Peacock is is NBC's entrant into this. It's uh, if you really want the context, uh, I think Comcast would have preferred that it would still is was still a part owner of Hulu because mm-hmm. Hulu was working pretty well, and it got kicked out of Hulu because Disney bought Fox, and so Disney and Fox own two thirds of Hulu. So get out of here, Comcast. You got to go make your own service. So this is their service, and if you think about it in the way that, that Hulu started out years ago, this is a place where you can watch shows that have already been on TV. Um, that's what this is, plus some extra new stuff. I think the major thing that distinguishes it from its competitors is that while you can pay for Peacock, they don't really expect you to. They expect you to watch it for free with ads, kind of like old television. What what strikes you opening up Peacock from the get-go? How does it compare to everything else we've seen so far? 
Well, I think just to touch on what you said, it's free and with a giant asterisk. It's free. The the basic free tier that most people are going to get if they are if you're not a cable subscriber, and specifically if you're not a Comcast or Cox subscriber, the free tier that you're going to get um, gives you half of what Peacock actually offers. So that means you're going to get, uh, I believe it's more than 7,500 uh, hours, I believe, of of television and films. Um, you're going to get access to some other kind of cool things, like they have a trending section where you'll get clips um, from SNL or from the Today yeah. Show. Um, but you're not going to get Premier League games. You're not going to get access to ne- kind of next day programming from NBC. And you're not going to get access to a full category of originals that are coming out and their library. So the free aspect is what will bring people in, people like me, as someone who spends too much already on streaming services. But it's not free in the sense of everyone's going to get the exact same thing. There's a there's a there's an up level. It's interesting because right now, and I follow pretty closely. They're going out of their way not to talk about the fact that there's a paid service here, both yeah. in their corporate messaging and when you're actually on the site or the app. If you click around, you can figure out how to give them money, but that is not what they're asking for. They're asking you to watch TV for free and then watch some ads. The best way that I approached Peacock on the free tier was I used ex- exactly for what I imagine a lot of people are, which is to watch old NBC shows. Because I was someone who uh, I was very, you know, I was very, very young in the 90s. Um, and I grew up watching ER with my parents and Law and & Order. And um, it was something that I have a fond memory of. So Peacock for me was like a good way just to watch the Dick Wolf collection. For, uh, and that's what I was using it for. But what I realized as I wanted to do more stuff, like I want, I'm a Premier League fan. So I wanted to watch Premier League games. Premier League is soccer. Yeah. For those who aren't following, it's English soccer. Very good. Uh, it's fantastic. And I wanted to watch that and I couldn't. And the more time I spent with the app, the takeaway I got from it is this is a major play to have a, a, a streaming focused service, which is great, but also to remind people that cable is good. Like this exists to remind you that as a cable subscriber, you're going to get things that you are not going to get via, you know, any of the streamers, Netflix or uh, Hulu by itself. This was like, we have this because we own, because we're NBC Universal and we're Comcast, we can give you some of this. But in order to do that, you either need to be a Comcast or Cox subscriber already, a customer already, or you have to pay the $10 and you get some of it. It's a streaming service coming from a company that that is the biggest uh cable TV provider in the country and which owns uh, a giant uh, TV programmer. Um, and all the TV programmers and media companies that are getting into streaming are going back and forth about sort of how much they want to invest in this new streaming business and how much of it they how much they want to continue to uh, mine their existing business as long as they can. Disney has gone pretty far in saying, "Look, we're taking some of our best stuff we have. It's going on Disney Plus." Um, Hamilton's a great example of that. It was supposed to be in theater, as you can see it uh, only on Disney Plus. They're still hedging their bets a little bit, right? If you want to get ESPN, their most valuable network. You have to get it through cable TV. You can't get standalone. But they're, um, on that scale, NBC is much closer to, hey, the existing business we have is pretty good. So we're also going to have a streaming business, but we're not moving everything over there quite yet. You're not going to see our best movies there day and date. You're not going to see that you just said you can't see our, sh- our shows, our best shows that come out on a Tuesday. You can't see them on Wednesday. We'd prefer that you keep paying for cable. But if you're not, we have stuff for you. 
Well, and even the design of the app is supposed to make you feel like the way cable TV makes you feel, um, well, hopefully makes you feel the idea. Like they have a section when you open the app, there's three basic um, kind of categories. There's browse, which is what anyone who's used Netflix or Hulu will automatically know. It's find your TV show. On, yeah, and find your TV Here's show. Here's a search bar. Yeah, <laughs> there's got a that tri- one. <laughs> there's a trending section, which uh, I think is like quibby light to an extent. It's clips, viral stuff that they- That um, is a weird one. <laughs> I couldn't tell if they were videos. They seemed like maybe they were like actual stories. They're very random. Um, you know, there's an ad for a Ryan Lochte show, I guess. I yeah, remember it, who Ryan Lochte was. <laughs> we can talk about Ryan Lochte more. Some Ryan Lochte some more in a minute. But this the section that you're talking about that sort of looks like a TV grid is pretty interesting. And it's it's yeah. either a novelty that we're all going to, you know, stop paying attention to or maybe there's a there there. I think what's interesting about it is that it removes the paradox of choice, which is the biggest issue I find with streaming services. And it's something that Netflix executives have spoken about when they, you know, it's something that Greg Peters, who oversees a lot of the text of Netflix, he's aware of it where he's like, we know people spend eight minutes or whatever browsing to find something. Then they just rewatch Friends or I guess not Friends anymore, but they rewatch whatever they've been watching just because it's so paralyzing. And what Peacock does really well with the channels is like, if you go and you're like, oh, there's a murder mystery playing or there's an SNL playing, you can just click it and it plays like regular TV. Right now it feels a bit gimmicky, but the thing that NBC, Universal, and Comcast really want to do is incorporate more live aspects. And if we can get to a point where it's like, yeah, there's a live news broadcast from NBC or from Sky, which Comcast also owns, um, or if you can get live sports right there uh, to an extent for whatever NBC Universal has the licensing rights to. If there is that, some reason to actually be watching live TV, because right, right now what they're showing, these channels aren't really channels for the most part. They're mm-hmm. sort of like a collection of stuff that normally you would get on demand. So like there's a Seth Meyers channel. And when you click in, it starts playing whatever part of the Seth Meyers episode. But it's from however many years ago. You can't uh, like regular TV or regular TV used to be. You can't pause it or rewind. Mm-hmm. It's it's kind of disorienting. I mean, what it really does is say, you don't have to do any work because yeah. we're already streaming something for you here, which everyone is trying to tackle in a different way. Um, but it's it's a pretty cool novelty. Let's talk about news and sports and the fact that they're not there. Um, Peacock launched, you know, it had a soft launch a couple of months ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, the real launch is now. This was supposed to be a huge, huge um, Olympics showcase yeah. for NBC. Obviously, there are no Olympics, but a big push for for Peacock was going to be, we're going to have a ton of Olympics programming here. Obviously, that doesn't exist. They have to sort of soldier on. They still have weird shit like the Ryan Lochte show, which I guess <laughs> would have been relevant at one point. Um, and, and similarly, um, with news, I think they had planned to do a big push around a new news service uh, that they're sort of doing with Sky that's sort of like their version of CNN. Those things don't really exist at all right now. But you could see how they could plug them in. This seems like a pretty good staging area for them. And I guess when I think about this from both, you know, thinking about, you know, what does it do for NBC and Comcast and what does it do for just a person who wants to watch something? Like, it seems like a pretty good compromise. Like, those are pretty... Yeah. Two successful Venn diagrams. I think I butchered that analogy, but you get what I'm saying. You're smart. I think it's a win-win-win in the sense that it's a win for NBC Universal as a content kind of company. It's a win for consumers who just want somewhere to, honestly, a service that is free to an extent. You're going to get a bunch of really good TV shows and some live live sports aspect kind of built in. Um, And they're figuring that out. But also a win for 
Comcast and a win for like just finding when it comes down to with any media company, just the access to data they're going to have via this. The fact that they built a whole new advertising kind of technology for this so that they can sell high uh, ads that are better targeted to people that they can sell, you know, at a higher price. They're going to come out with a bit of a, a, a new revenue path for them that they didn't have before. And at the same time, the compromise on our end is not that bad. It's like you're still getting a bunch of really good shows for a very little, if anything, fee. Right. I'm, I'm, I am, I'm just going to caution you on the, the ad tech stuff because they oversell this stuff all the time. Um, I spend a lot of time watching Hulu right now, and the idea that they have targeted these ads towards me and my family is ridiculous because they've got <laughs> no idea, and they're repeating the same ads over and over. And the main <laughs> thing they're doing is saying, here are five minutes of ads coming. Right. Um, so you can go do something else while we run these ads that you can't skip. Like any uh, new video service uh, launch, this was supposed to have a bunch of originals. I've poked around. I've seen ads for originals. I can't actually find the originals. Is there stuff here that didn't show up because it wasn't ready? Is there stuff that's coming? And and what have you seen among the originals that's interesting, if anything? Yeah, they they uh, Matt Strauss, who's kind of the head of this whole operation, he's acknowledged in, in a previous call with reporters God, at this point, time is a flat circle in the pandemic. At some point during this, he acknowledged that new shows, there were going to be a bunch of new shows that weren't going to hit the, the premiere date for Peacock because of the pandemic hitting, uh, making production issues. The same way that HBO Max has encountered same the similar issues um, in Disney Plus, of course. They do have a slate of, I believe it's eight or nine originals that they launched with. Um, the most appealing, or I guess the highest kind of profile is Brave New World, which is backed by Alden Ehrenreich, who played young Han Solo in Solo, A Star Wars Story for Disney. I haven't seen it. And here's the thing about the originals. None of them are appealing to me. Even the David Schwimmer show, which is his first return to sitcoms since Friends. Um, I think it's called Intelligence. None of this is 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 exciting to me. None of it is like I have to watch the show. But what NBC has and what they know they have is that huge catalog of IP that I think they do a much better job of marketing than C- Viacom CBS did, or at the time CBS did with CBS All Access, where it's like they have a bunch of IP too, and they just weren't able to get people on board with it. When I open up Peacock, it's like, oh yeah, here are all these NBC shows that I genuinely love watching, that I want to rewatch, anything from, you know, Cheers and Frasier um, to uh, 30 Rock. But again, the shows on that side are really interesting because I just met, listed off a bunch of shows that you can watch on Peacock. You can watch some of those on Hulu as well. You can, you can watch, watch some, some of them on Hulu. You can watch some of them on Netflix. Watch some of them on CBS All Access. Uh, right now, NBC's probably most valuable show is not on Peacock. Uh, the Office is on Netflix uh, for the rest of the year. That then NBC gets it back. You know, if you are if you're someone who wants to figure out how to watch The Office, you'll go find The Office. I think this is mostly for like, oh yeah, that, Thirty Rock. That's let's watch some of that, and it's it's quite satisfying. Um, there was a show I wanted to ask you about. Doesn't exist yet, but it's the one they sort of leaned into in all the press releases. It's a reboot of Battlestar, or a reboot of a reboot of Battlestar Galactica. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Sam Ismail uh, is is attached to it. When will we see that? We don't know, right? No idea. Everything at this point is up in the air. And this is something that we've been tracking pretty closely over at The Verge, too, because so much, I mean, we are looking at, are any, um, you know, movies going to come out this year at this point? And we're looking at what shows 
were these streaming services supposed to launch on that they heavily marketed on that they're not launching with? And for Peacock, uh, Battlestar Galactica is a big one with Sam Esmail, who has an overall deal with NBC Universal. And also, you know, the Friends reunion special for HBO Max was supposed to be the thing, and they couldn't launch with it. And now David Schwimmer just said, like, we're supposed to shoot in August, but we don't know if we'll even do that because it all depends. Yeah. I got to say, that Friends reunion did not seem like compelling content to me. Um, and it's extraordinarily expensive. And I get how it'd be a fun thing for for them to launch. But I think whenever they come out, then it was like, oh, finally, the, the long-delayed Friends reunion special. It'll, you'll, you, you don't really want to see David Schwimmer and Jennifer Aniston sitting around talking about what it's like to make that show. But maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it'll be a genius. Well, and the other thing I think that's really important about all of these streaming services kind of figuring out what their next six months look like is they're competing with the juggernaut, which is Netflix, which is going, yeah, we've got, I I think I saw a number that was like, they've released an absurd amount of movies already. Ted Sarandos, who's the new co-CEO of Netflix, just was like, we're pretty much good into 2021, at which point then they'll be in the same kind of boat. They said it's going to, well, what they said is the first half of 2021 is going to be light. Right. But all our good shit will be in 2022. I mean, it's pretty funny because even Netflix, right, acknowledges there is a limit to how much stuff they've had. Yeah. They are definitely moving stuff up so you don't get, t- you know, the stuff that was they were thinking about coming out within the summer and fall, they moved up to spring. Yeah. We're in summer now. Um, and this may or may not be a coincidence, but they're leaning more on some of their international stuff. Yeah. Um, I keep referencing this in every podcast I do, there is a softcore Polish uh, porn movie. 365 Days. There you go. <laughs> that I have not seen. I've read an excellent, excellent description of it. And that was a top 10 trending show for them for a while. And maybe that would have, maybe they always planned on bringing the Polish softcore porn uh, out to America as soon as possible. Uh, or maybe that's something that they sort of digging around in, in the corners for, for the loose content change. Um, so to sum up, we think Peacock's kind of good. I think if Peacock was charging $10 as an entry level fee, it would be like, this is something you don't need. It's not foundational in the way that Netflix is a foundational streaming service. Uh, the fact that it's free to anyone if they want to go basic and then 5 to $10, depending on the other kind of tiers yep. that you can look into, easy, easy win. And if you are someone who uses the Apple TV app, which I kind of do mostly just to check it out. It integrates with that. I mean, you know, everyone periodically makes the smart-ass remark that, hey, all these different stations and services is kind of like a cable TV package. Maybe someone should bundle them all together. And yeah, this feels like, yeah, this would be a good thing for someone to remind me that, oh, uh, I was going to say Golden Girls. (laughs) 30 Rock is on. I bet the Golden Girls are on it too. Uh, And I should go check it out and there'd be a listing and all that would work. But the truth is, we all know how to get into apps and flick around, and, and this will not hurt you, as far as we can tell. You know, it seems like we're doing an ad, and we should note that that uh, Comcast is an investor in our parent company, but they did not pay us to make this. No. Okay. This is our, our rambling, mostly coherent, entirely coherent on your part, less so on mine, <laughs> mini-review of Peacock, and we're giving it two thumbs up. Yes. Okay, Julia Alexander, you're you're a marvel. You're incredibly patient. Um, I look forward to the day where I can see you in person. Me too. Thanks for joining. Take care. Thanks again to Julia. Thanks again to Chris. Thanks again to the folks who make this show possible, the Vox Media Podcast Network and their sales team, and also Jelani, who produces the show, and Joel, who edits it on a quick turnaround like today. Thanks again to you guys. This is Recode Media. We'll see you next week.
more to-dos, less time, and an infinite number of tools to keep track of. Sometimes doing business has never felt harder, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You can just use HubSpot because their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this, high quality leads, fast closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark breaking quarters. It's not a miracle, it's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today. Support for this show comes from Fundrise. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting Fundrise.com Fox. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at Fundrise.com flagship. This is a paid advertisement.